For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with some sanity on global warming in this readout video from our latest Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter. And in this case, not just our own sanity. Instead, our lead story is that, Energy Now reports, quote, the biggest climate event of the calendar looks set to draw far fewer chief executives than it did just a year ago. BlackRock Inc. CEO Larry Fink won't be at the COP27 summit in Egypt next month and will instead attend a meeting of the firm's board of directors, according to people familiar with his plans, end quote. Other major CEOs, including Jane Fraser of Citigroup and Bill Winters of Standard Chartered PLC, were also skipping the event. Yeah, big deal, some paranoids may say. Capitalists hate the environment. But all three of them pointedly attended COP26 last year. What's more, Fink ostentatiously used BlackRock's massive financial clout to push net zero, except for BlackRock's investments in China, land of coal. But it seems BlackRock is getting pushback from the democratic world for trying to sabotage the energy on which it depends, and perhaps from clients as well. Many Canadian banks and firms are still trying to rally around the white flag on climate, with the Canadian Energy News Network insisting, for instance, that, quote, banks investing in Canadian oil and gas means investing in responsible, low-emissions-focused energy, end quote. But once you agree with claims that your product sets the planet on fire, it's remarkably hard to get permission to produce or sell it, or stare down activist shareholders, or even reassure a baffled public. Still, Go woke, go broke has a way of focusing even the virtue-signaling mind. As Bloomberg recently noted, quote, Banks try quiet quitting on net zero. Last year's enthusiasm for G-Fans turns into anxiety, end quote. G-Fans being Mark Carney's oh-so-recently trendy Global Alliance for Net Zero, which many of them loudly joined at COP26 last year in Glasgow. So, good news as far as it goes. Although we do realize that when those in positions of authority experience such a fit of sanity, especially on climate, they're very tempted to lie down until it goes away. Indeed, we were sorry to report two instances of precisely that phenomenon in the same newsletter. First, right after his deputy PM and finance minister attempted to move toward good sense on energy and geopolitics, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau blabbered that, quote, the move off fossil fuels is going to happen much faster because of Russia, end quote. Rather than agreeing with her that energy security matters, the man who bills taxpayers over 50000 a year for groceries, including 1000 bucks just on boxed spring water, or as he put it, quote, drink box water bottle sort of things, end quote, lest he be forced to drink eau de robinet, which if you're not Canadian and bilingual means tap water. He also recruited noted Montreal chef Chanthi Yen as his family's personal cook. Now he hallucinates windmill-powered tanks for Ukraine or some sort of things. The other example comes from Britain, where the BBC reports that the Labour Party is determined to meet the energy shortage by preventing fracking, and some members of the governing Tory party are keen to help them do it by reversing their previous reversal of a ban on fracking. And for something even sillier, from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, administrators want to burn more natural gas in order to burn less of it. And if you're baffled, don't worry, because so are they. The idea is to add four natural gas generators, if the city will allow it, because, quote, the net zero carbon roadmap states that although the goal is to reduce emissions by switching from natural gas to electricity, McMaster needs to reduce electricity costs in order to achieve those reductions, end quote. Does your head hurt yet? It will soon. Because you see, quote, in order to achieve this transition without significant increases in utility costs, the campus needs to reduce the electrical rate it pays, the report states, end quote. 
And here we want to emphasize once again that people who talk this way aren't engaged in some kind of plot because, among other things, if they were, they'd take more care over their cover story. Instead, it's full steam ahead. Carson Jarema just wrote in the National Post, quote, The cost of gas will continue to rise, and with it, the price of just about everything else. Once this pandemic-induced inflationary period is passed, the Liberals' enthusiasm for forcing Canadians to lower their standard of living will only grow. Of course, they won't phrase it that way. They will call it a transition, or putting a price on pollution, or Canadians doing their part to fight climate change, end quote. And then he added, quote, The government might even believe some of it, end quote. But the problem is, they believe all of it. What you see is what you get, including the stupidity. Here, I'm going to interrupt myself briefly to thank all of you who are watching, and especially those who've subscribed, who are sharing the material, and who are contributing financially. And for the rest of you, I want to urge you, please do click the subscribe button because it helps other people find us. Share it directly with friends, family, co-workers, anyone you think might find it helpful, and do click here and make a pledge. $2, $3, $5, cup of coffee a month. It's what we need to keep bringing sanity to the climate debate. And now, back to the show. Oh, also, with Vladimir Putin deliberately targeting Ukraine's energy sector in a murderous fit of petulance, you'd think people would get the importance of nuclear, fossil, and also hydropower. Instead, someone actually commented on one of our videos that Russia was targeting Ukrainian renewables, to which we can only reply with the Duke of Wellington, if you can believe that, you can believe anything. And there's more where that came from. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who incredibly studied economics at elite universities, recently intoned that, quote, a lot of Americans could be saving a lot of money by owning an EV, but only if they could afford it, end quote. At least when Stomp and Tom Connor sang in The Consumer about how we'll, quote, save a lot of money spending money we don't got, end quote, he was being sarcastic. But Buttigieg is quite sincere that if you were rich enough to afford expensive things, you wouldn't be poor. Glad we got that straightened out. And now, here's something else tangled. National Geographic recently ran a headline, quote, The Freakish Winter That Turns Europe Into a Wasteland which referred to a story about the wickedly cold winter of 1709, which National Geographic, in a rare nod to reality, does admit was a catastrophe. But given the way the little ice age has been polemicized or erased, try and find it in Michael Mann's infamous hockey stick, we were curious as how the, to how the article would deal with it. It didn't. The piece did give good colour to the cold snap, including quoting Louis XIV's sister-in-law that's sitting in the Palace of Versailles, the lap of luxury at the time, quote, I am sitting by a roaring fire, have a screen before the door, which is closed, so that I can sit here with a fur around my neck and my feet in a bearskin sack, and I am still shivering and can barely hold the pen. Never in my life have I seen a winter such as this one, which freezes the wine in bottles, end quote. But as to the cause, guess what? It's unknown, or so they say. The months-long freeze was so bad church bells cracked, but it wasn't climate, just weather. The story says, quote, this freakish winter ultimately claimed the lives of a vast number of Europeans and disrupted two major wars, but to this day there is no conclusive theory for its cause, end quote. And in keeping with that attitude, at no point does the piece actually mention that it was already cold in the 17th century and had been since the non-existent medieval warm period ended. 
And there are further consequences to this kind of confusion. Bloomberg News recently opined that, quote, the planet has already warmed 1.2 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial times, ushering in worse impacts than scientists had anticipated and all but guaranteeing more heat waves, floods, droughts, and other environmental impacts ahead, end quote. But the National Geographic piece unwittingly illustrated the reverse is true. It says, quote, temperatures remained abnormally low until mid-April, but the snow and ice, when they finally thawed, brought floods, end quote. No, dang. And there's more, much more. Quote, disease thrived throughout the year. A flu epidemic had broken out in Rome in late 1708, and the following winter's cold and hunger only helped spread the virus, turning Europe turning into a Europe-wide pandemic in 1709 and 1710. To compound the disaster, plague also arrived that year from the Ottoman Empire via Hungary. But of all the ills stalking Europe, hunger was in many ways the worst. Cereals, vines, vegetables, fruit trees, flocks, and herds were all laid to waste, and the next summer's harvest had not even been planted. The situation sparked hikes in grain prices, with prices rising sixfold during 1709, end quote. And here we'd been told it was warming that killed crops. Gosh. Now, in an unguarded moment, the piece did blurt out that in addition to volcanoes going off, quote, the year 1709 also falls within the period known by climatologists as the Maunder Minimum, 1649 to 1715, when the sun's emission of solar energy was significantly diminished. Whether these events combined to create Europe's glacial catastrophe that winter remains a matter of heated debate, end quote. Yeah or stony silence, because if Mr. Sun was involved then, he might be today, and we can't have that. We also can't have people poking holes in climate alarmist dogma, like that electric vehicles are the way of the future, but our Everybody Knows feature did it anyway, asking, if they're so great and efficient and all, why do governments need to subsidize them and then ban gasoline cars to boot? If EVs really are so much better, why do we need to force people to buy them? Well, it turns out that EVs cost far more to buy than comparable gasoline-powered cars, which is why they remain playthings of the rich who, it also turns out, usually don't just own a gas-powered car as well, but drive it twice as often. Another problem is that despite lavish subsidies, EVs aren't selling because buyers see that soaring electricity costs, thank you renewables, will make them more expensive to run. Also, their batteries wear out and cost a fortune to replace. The grid can't charge them all, they don't reduce CO2 emissions, and the battery manufacturing process is an ecological disaster. Some future that is, despite what everybody knows. Oh, and to send us a tip for our Everybody Knows feature, please email us at admin at climatedn.com and be sure to include a link to the story. In the newsletter, we also note that in 2007, Australia declared scientist and author Tim Flannery Australian of the Year for sounding the alarm about climate change. In an interview with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, he explained that the drought they were experiencing was definitely due to climate change and would not end. Five years later, according to the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, Australia experienced its wettest interval since 1900. And now, what's up with that notes, with extended La Nina conditions taking hold, Australia's problem is seemingly endless rains. So you'll never guess what's to blame. Right. Climate scientist Stephen Sherwood assured The Guardian last year that, quote, basic physics shows a warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture, about 7% for each degree of warming, end quote. And therefore, quote, it is making things worse, and that gets worse still as emissions keep going up, end quote. Unless the drought comes back, and if it does, climate scientists will take credit for predicting it and say the settled science shows that warming means drought. 
In the newsletter, we also dip into the CO2science.org archive for a look at how the urban heat island effect distorts temperature records, specifically by looking at metropolitan Athens, Greece. Four researchers compared records for urban, suburban, and rural stations from 1970 to 2004 and found that the impact of UHI wasn't just real, it was increasing. So, the warmer it seems to get, the more we should be suspicious. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I already am.